talking all things pinball and arcade across New Zealand and beyond. You are listening to Simon's Pinball Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of my Pinball Podcast. I am happy today to bring you the second of four Melbourne-based interviews. I recently popped over there for a holiday and uh, spoke to some um, people involved in the industry in Melbourne. I am quite interested in the scene in Melbourne. For one thing, it's a lot bigger than anything we saw in New Zealand due to the population of the city. And I also did spend some time living in Melbourne at the end of 1990 and early 91. And I was largely unemployed. I worked in a, casually in a bar there in South Yarra. But I did spend a lot of time playing pinball, um, played Funhouse and some of the other games that were around. I remember Funhouse was brand new at the time. And uh, so, yeah, I, I do have a little bit of a connection to the um, pinball scene in Melbourne from those days, so it's really neat to talk to people there. Um, today we have Gunnar Salty, who was involved in the industry from 1978, and he um, has some great stories. He's a lovely, humble man with some uh, wonderful stories about um, the scene and what it was like to be operating on such a scale. Uh, in Melbourne. So please uh, join with me in welcoming Gunnar to the stable of podcasts on my website and I hope you will enjoy the chat. Thank you. I'm here in Melbourne, southern, southwest, southeastern suburbs. Correct. Southeastern Waverley. Waverley, suburb uh, Waverley area, yeah, Wheelers Hill is the suburb. Okay, so I'm here in Melbourne. I um, came for a vintage uh, collector's meet last weekend and I met some wonderful people there who have been involved with pinball, um, one of whom is my um, interviewee today, Gunnar Sulte, Sulte yes. um, who has been involved with pinball in Melbourne for a very long time and I'm really excited to chat with you Gunnar um, about your story with pinball um, so welcome and thank you my pleasure <laughs> and you were just saying that you came over from Norway in 1962 yes and with your family is that right with my parents we were to be here for three to six months to visit a brother who's uh, married to an Australian lady and uh, they had a couple of kids and rather than them come to uh, to Norway uh, we decided to come to Australia. I had just finished junior school at that stage, I was yeah. 14 yeah. and um, yeah, 60 years later I'm still here. And was it, do you, do you know why your parents chose Melbourne? Uh, my brother oh. lived here in Melbourne. Right. He, 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 we've always, in the whole 60 years, I've lived in this, yeah. uh, you know, within yeah. 5k radius yeah. of where I am. So, okay. So we came to visit him and, uh, you know, great. Suited my mother very well. Yeah. Um, so she was keen to extend the stay and 
we, we kept getting the tourist visa extended until immigration must have got sick of us and they stamped our papers permanent residence. Excellent. Yeah. Right. So that's all it took in those days. That's yeah. all it took. Yeah. yeah. And and you found yourself getting involved with pinball. I'm probably going to jump ahead eight or ten years now. So um, well, did you, were you playing pinball? Were you seeing pinball in Australia when you were a teenager? I, I noticed them, yes, and knew they were there and uh, all, all that, but never had much interest. Not, not even, you know, when I left Norway, there were places that had amusements, but, uh, but uh, really wasn't of much interest to, to me at all, you know. So, and, so uh, how did you come to find yourself um, getting involved? Uh, a bit of a convoluted story. Um, my parents had got to know this family and uh, the guy was involved in the amusement industry and he was after someone to buy new equipment to boost his, uh, his business and he asked me if I was interested because I, I just had an extended holiday in Europe. Uh, came back here and had no plans as to as to what to do. Um, he said there was a good opportunity, so uh, I, uh, you know, on day one in the business, I went out and bought three brand new pinballs. You know, you, you remember what they were? Uh, two Phoenix. Uh, this was nineteen seventy eight when I first bought new stuff. I, I worked with him. For a while before this, but uh, but uh, this was uh, Williams Phoenix, two of those at two thousand one hundred and ninety-five dollars each, <laughs> and I bought a Stern Wildfire. I guess and they were the games that were the current yes, titles, so they, you, they, that's they, why you bought two because it was the model they, that was they, just they were brand new, sort of released. out of the box. So yeah. uh, you know. Um, put those into locations and as a result the uh, guy I got involved with well he was able to keep his older equipment in the site and uh, we just expanded from there yeah never as a as a um, as, as a co-owner but basically operated side by side you know I uh, luckily I ran my equipment and he ran his and I helped him uh, with uh, setting up his equipment and finding locations for it and uh, yeah I gradually expanded more and more into did into he have he have quite a large stock at that time of presumably uh, electromechanical games he had uh, a substantial amount of machines uh, probably close to a hundred machines on location and um, yeah, uh, as the electromechanicals were sort of falling by the wayside, he decided to to buy a new lot of electromechanical machines um, from Coinplay Sales, and he bought a hundred and five machines in in one package. Wow! And uh, it became my my uh, responsibility to transport them from uh, Coinplay and to our factory or warehouse in Dandenong and we would uh, make them, uh, you know, set, set them up, assemble them properly 
uh, set them up ready for use um, and I would load up the, uh, the truck maybe four pinballs sometimes five and I wouldn't come back home until I'd found locations for them mainly the Mornington Peninsula and Gippsland that's the areas that we covered yeah. well, that's quite a sales task to go out and find it, it, immediate immediate it, locations. It, it was, it was, but um, there were so many people that, uh, you know, when you told them that the takings from these could pay your electricity bill, and uh, you know, especially shopkeepers like the fish and chip shops and, and those sort of places, they loved the idea of having their, their electricity bill paid. So. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I finished up placing every one of those hundred and five pinball machines. So uh, you know, so it became quite a quite a big round. Yeah. That's incredible. Was there was Coin Play an operator at the same time? Uh, yes, but they weren't involved in the street locations at that stage. They were into the amusement centres. Um, they had one main one in Russell Street in, in uh, central Melbourne, uh, which had between 50 and 55 machines. So it was a reasonably sized place and it was doing extremely well. Um, it was known as the Russell Street Amusement Centre, but all the kids knew it as the Red House because it was a reddish ochre building and uh, it just became you know, became very well known as the Red House. Yeah. Do you think that CoinPlay, if they're going to sell 105 EM games, did they think that you're moving to a solid state technology so they would oh, sell yes, that, yeah, that, yeah. that um, those, back those, catalogue of machines? Yes, those 105 machines that, uh, that Eldor bought, they had all been retired from, from the centres. So they had already invested in electronic machines yeah. yeah and did you did you see also that the because the value must have plummeted quite a bit i think you said forty thousand, didn't you yes so that's 105 so yeah. that's what about 400 a piece correct um so did you think that the ems had a future or what was your take on it uh I saw that they they had the capacity to earn money, especially in the locations that we were targeting, like uh, caravan parks and and uh, general stores and uh, takeaway food places, all those sort of things in the holiday areas. And uh, oh, they they proved they proved that they they were still still viable for a very long time after the electronic ones came in. Um, and you didn't need to get uh, such a huge taking to uh, yeah. to make it uh, viable. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, and were you doing other machines as well, like the wall-mounted games? Not w not wall-mounted, but uh, arcade uh, games, like uh, standard stand-up video games. Uh, quite a few, fourteen-inch tabletops, and uh, as time went on, it moved on to twenty-inch tabletops and uh, a swag of, uh, of upright video games of all types you know so with the you know the the games of the time uh, obviously uh, Space Invaders came in in 77 and 
Frogger and Pac-Man and uh, all those type of games. Gyrus was a was a very big hit at the time. We did extraordinary money taking out of a out of the Gyrus games. Yeah. yeah, it's a popular game. Very popular. Um, I love playing it today. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one. It was quite unusual with the circular. Yes. Um, yes. Ship ship tra- yeah. trajectory. So. And stereo. On <laughs> oh, stereo, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the um, tell me a little bit about the, the the operating climate back then because I understand there was some regulation around the bingo machines, and then there was the flipper games. Did you have to register every machine that went onto location? Not not in the early days. No, that came in substantially later. Uh, but uh, there were operators that uh, that had uh, you know bingo machines operating in mainly in the coffee shops where you know they were playing cards in the back room and, and those sort of places. They 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 would have they would have the bingos or by their proper name the inline machines. <laughs> right, right. And was there any kind of um, stigma around the gambling oh, aspect. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, you know it was a even uh, even uh, a detective at the time. He he said, "Well, it's very much a you know a sporting game or a cat and mouse game." He said, "We we know they're illegal. They know they're operating illegally, and uh, they're trying to do whatever they can to make them appear to be legal." But you know. Uh, when you when you put uh, money in and you get uh, a payment in cash at the end of the day, that makes it a, an illegal device, and it's still the same to this day. You know? So uh, well, there, there must have been raids, or there must oh, have been raids constantly, yeah. constantly. Yes. Yeah. But you never got into the bingo market. It was no. always amusements. No. So was was there a thing? I think we touched upon it a little bit. If a game had flippers, it was deemed to be a skill game. If it didn't have flippers, a lot of people say that even flippers at that stage were illegal, because you had a possibility of earning credits in the way of games, and uh, the uh, you know mo- most of the electronic ones at least you had a, a maximum of five games, and uh, the law was sort of it was a bit of a grey area. That you know you, you had a possibility of getting five games. Well, you know, back in those days it was twenty cents a game. So five games only amounted to a dollar. So it wasn't, you know, that they weren't too worried about that. But according the letter of the law stated that they were an illegal device as well. But you know, totally ignored by the uh, by the. Um, Raffles and Bingo Permits Board. So when did that change? I know that in America it changed in '78, for the for the most part, with it being not illegal anymore to uh, have amusement machines. I, I don't know whether I, I, I think the the uh, current legislation is written in a different way, so it, it you know it uh, it doesn't fall under that category. Yeah. You know? yeah. But exactly when that took place, I don't know. Sure. So the, the, the operating, there must have been a number of operators in Melbourne. And was there quite, was it quite a competitive industry with their turf wars, with their, with their sort of uh, any tensions between operators? Or um, did you all work together? We, we, tried, we tried to 
sort of not to step on one another's toes, but there were certainly people that didn't like one another and uh, did whatever they they could to overtake other people's locations, but it was totally unnecessary. There was enough for all. So yeah, yeah. no cutting of power cords and oh, there it happened. Uh, I I haven't experienced it. Um, even you know, in, in, in all this time operating back in those days and right up until uh, until you know the present years, I haven't haven't had anything like that. I've had customers and people that I know that have had machines damaged. Um, but uh, John told me about a tabletop that got pushed down some stairs or something. Or yeah, uh, I, I don't know the ins and outs of that story, but uh, I believe uh, the uh, perpetrator was on the phone to the owner of the tabletop and the noise you're hearing is your table falling down the stairs. <laughs> uh, That's funny. Well, it's funny talking about it now as time has moved on, but, that you know, that was, yeah, it's quite... Um, Vigilante. <laughs> oh, yes. No, the only uh, item like that that I had sort of first-hand knowledge of was a location, a, a hotel location, where a new operator had come in with uh, very expensive pinball machines and, uh, and some, um, some uh, toy vending machines. And uh, there was a uh, four-player cabinet there from my customer and they had tried to remove it from the room it wouldn't fit into the wouldn't fit through the doorway because it had a four player control panel on it and they physically just broke the the control panel into several pieces to get it out of out and away from the machines that they had put in were they just going to put it out the front or something yes yeah, yes, yeah. wow Okay, um, so you you had these EM machines on a lot of locations, and you mentioned CoinPlay, because at some point did you start working for CoinPlay? Is that right? Yes, yes. Um, the uh, guy that bought all of these machines, he uh, he became a chronic gambler, and it became harder and harder for me to uh, uh, to get paid for my input into into looking after all of these machines and uh, and uh, doing all the collection and uh, you know upgrading on a very very constant basis and uh, it got to a point where I said no nah, this you know I can't I can't keep doing this you know got got to the stage where I, I was collecting money and rather than banking it I had to uh, I had to take my wages out before I banked it on his behalf you know so uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't a, uh, a viable situation for me anyway. So You told me a story on Sunday how he would take a slot machine to a location and, yes. would, and then would you like to tell that story? He, uh, we, we had, a, we had a, a reasonably sized factory in, in Dandenong and uh, we would build the machines at, at that location he would uh, put it in the ute, take it to a coffee lounge, sell them a machine for, oh, they, they were ranging in price from 
five and a half to six and a half thousand dollars and he would start playing the machine and uh, before he left the location he would have lost all that money so uh, mm-hmm. you know, it just goes to show that it was a a total disease with the you know when you when you start gambling in that fashion yeah because he would uh, you know he could play them for nothing in the workshop and uh, and yet he'd uh, you know he'd play them on location with the with a view to possibly get the jackpot, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. Yeah. I suppose he might have felt he was re-establishing, reinforcing the relationship he might have had with his customer by then sitting at the machine he sold him and playing it. Um, who knows what's yeah, going on? Yeah. And so then you went to Coinplay, is that right? Well, Coinplay had been our part supplier from day one. The fact that we bought the, or, or that he bought the, uh, the 105 pinball machines, um, because Coinplay had a number of arcades, they were always stocked up with spare parts for, for pinball and video games, and um, and they had also got into the circuit board sales, and we would go to them for all of our spare parts and uh, and for upgrading. In, in new game boards, etc. And uh, when it fell apart, f- from my perspective, uh, I approached Coinplay to see if they if they had any jobs. And uh, unfortunately, they said no. There were no jobs going. Anyway, I thought, oh well, I'll have to start looking for something else. And uh, about three days later, I get a phone call from uh, the chief technician at Coinplay. And uh, he said, we've created a job for you. Can you start on Monday? Great. That was 1982 at this stage. And what was your job? Dog's body, you know. From, from from what I had been doing with all the pinballs, uh, very, very few location calls because they already had a number of technicians looking after things because they had, at the at the peak, they had seven amusement centres. Wow. Uh, it was the Russell Street Amusement Centre or the Red House, as I mentioned, and also a number of others going by the Magic City name. Mm. And they were uh, uh, three, four, five located, five, six, six located in total in the city itself, like in the main streets in the, in the city, in Swanson Street, in Elizabeth Street, and in Russell Street. And uh, then we had a very large location in Footscray, and we had... Uh, a magic city centre in Altona and other locations mm. around the traps. And when I got involved, it was sort of basically looking after the machines that came into the workshop, the, you know, or, or the occasional trip out to a out to a site to do do a, a, a repair job or clear a jam coin mech or mm. something mm. simple like that. But uh, learned as I went, and um, then they invested more and more in street locations, 
and finished up with uh, somewhere between five and six hundred machines in other street locations. Wow. Not the centres, but uh, at milk bars, fish and chip shops, coffee shops. We had a, a Ligon Street, uh, which is uh, very famous for its nightlife. We had a huge number of coffee shops with machines in that, uh, up and down that street. You know? And, and that was a, you know, it was, uh, along with Russell Street Amusement Centre, that was a, a license to print money. Mm. You know, it was, it was very, very lucrative. And you had a lot of technicians that went yes, at your Yes, yes, yeah. The, uh, there were 17 on staff wow. when, uh, at, at the peak, but, uh, you know, that obviously diminished as, uh, as, uh, Kids started spending money in other areas, and the owner of Coinplay at that stage he had a very strict rule about returns. If there wasn't X amount in the cash box over a, um, I think I think his criteria was over a, a twelve or thirteen week period. If the money wasn't there, just withdraw the machine from or machines from that location, because you know, and. Uh, yeah, we had a we had an operations manager who was very very busy with uh, upgrading machines or, or not so much upgrading but uh, changing them over. Mm. He would bring them into the workshop. We would upgrade them in the workshop. He would take them back onto location and keep them rotating that way. So you would have been running on the twenty cent coins, and yes. then at some point the gold coins came in. Yes. I think for New Zealand it was about 1988 the gold coins came in. I don't know what about New Zealand, about Australia. Maybe about no, a similar period. Right, okay. But um, that must have boosted the revenue when it went to gold oh, yes, gold coins. Yes, yes, yeah. Do you have any kind of ballpark figures as to what a what a average take would be for a, for a location? I couldn't say because there, it, it's probably too wide a band to. Yeah. Uh, I never sort of looked at the figures yeah. back those days, you know. There were rumours of uh, of um, turtles, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, taking two and a half to three thousand dollars in a week. Wow, that's you know? the Data East Turtles. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they were the glory days. Certainly, yes. the late eighties, early nineties yeah. were, were absolutely was, yeah. was was big, and the same in New Zealand. Um, yeah. Not quite to that level. I think the, the the best take for New Zealand markets would be about a thousand a week. Mm-hmm. Would be considered extremely good. And I even came across a guy the other day who used to operate in a bar in the early nineties. And and I just sort of said to him, "Oh, ben, uh, ballpark thousand a week." And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right." <laughs> <laughs> so um, so you talk about it tapering off. Um, into the 90s. So you, you stayed with Coinplay through into the 90s? I uh, worked there um, under uh, various jobs in, in the workshop, general workshop hand. Um, became a collector as well at one point where I was um, driving around to all the street locations and, and emptying, the, emptying the machines. Um, to the point where I had a, uh, actually I, I, I wore out 
two Toyota Corollas because of the weight of the wow. of the coin in the boot. Mm, yeah, yeah. And when you're doing the cash up, it's a split share, isn't it? Profit share. Yes. So yeah. you'd have to do the cash up in front of the staff. You'd have, you'd have to count on site and uh, you know, and the, and then give them the percentage that the, the, that the agreement was for. You know, Did you use coin counters? Oh yes. Yeah, you must have done. Yeah. yeah. I talked to John. He never had a coin counter. Neither, neither did I. <laughs> I've still got a couple of them hanging around. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. Of course. I mean, you're professional. <laughs> um, okay, that's that's interesting. And so, um, doing lots of mobile work there. Yeah, and then they gave me the job as uh, taking care of spare parts, and uh, I was in that role for quite a long time you know as being fully responsible for for sourcing parts from overseas and organizing the ordering and uh, you know making sure that we always had had sufficient stock of, of all the consumables so with um, the distributorship because leisure and allied had the distributorship for Williams Valley in the 90s yes. didn't yes. they yes. but and that you would have been a customer of leisure and allied because you weren't distributors, were you? Point we point. became distributors oh, for Gottlieb Premier okay. Machines. Okay. That, that started, the first model we were handling was the Cubal Wizard, and then followed by a number of other models. And uh, yeah, that was a, an interesting time. Mm. Um, we, uh, we, we sold an awful lot of, awful lot of pinballs, and, uh, and we also sold uh, the coin play compact right or cps compact we manufactured several thousand of those cabinets and uh, this is a video arcade game yes uh, is that a um does it just have the one the one game on it or oh yes it, yeah. they, they were single single yeah. circuit board games yeah oh compact is the our oh, video frame is the name of the game uh, Compact, compact, is compact by Coinplay it was known as. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What kind of game was that? Well, the the the, the uh, circuit board itself was uh, easily changeable. Right. And they were convertible from horizontal to vertical by just sliding ah, sliding the monitor in. So on it, was, it had a jammer a jammer plug system. Jammer, jammer connector. Right, I see. Actually, it predated the jammer. We had right. our own multi plug. Right. Using a number of Molex Utilux plugs, uh, so it was uh, a universal type plug system. So right. uh, if if the board was a non-jammer, it was easy to to plug it in to uh, um, to suit a, a single joystick cabinet or a twin joystick cabinet or a two button, three button, whatever. Is this a response? Did you have import restrictions on um, getting... On the circuit boards, yes. They're getting, getting complete units from the States, which uh, is why it, you built... It, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, viable, yeah. you know, because we, we were building so many of those that the unit price came down to sure. a very, very, you know, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. A, nice, a nice profit margin. I know we were selling those cabinets without a game board, and and they were walking out the door at two thousand dollars a piece. Right. So. Yeah. And you reckon a couple of thousand units you made? At least. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the nineteen nineties saw pinball kind of rise and then fall quite sharply. 
um, you said that you bought the company. Yes, it, uh, at some point? I, uh, I was there until uh, 97 and uh, had, um, yeah, full responsibility for running of the, of the workshop and the operation, you know, uh, full responsibility for it at that stage and uh, uh, there were still um, two owners involved in coin play at that stage but in 97 I took over financially and took on the company mm -hmm. and uh, it had always been a, a drama because they were an hour's drive from my home so uh, I tried to buy the the building that we were in in Brunswick um, but uh, that was owned by the railways and they sort of in their 10-year plan it wasn't coming up for sale so I thought okay I'll I'll move away from Brunswick move closer to home so I found a, a very nice workshop in Springvale and uh, then expanded into other things as well as amusement side of things we went into into uh, providing satellite installations mm. and uh, we had agencies for uh, a couple of different pool table manufacturers so we were selling had all of that on display there was a thousand square meters of showroom space so uh, Plenty of room. Did you see that the operations were declining? Oh yes. And yes. so you thought you would focus on the home sales? Yes. Yeah. And so the because showroom was for the home market? For the home, primarily the home market. Did have uh, probably a thousand operators on our, on our list that would still continue to buy circuit boards and things that we brought in. Well that's a big number. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was a, you know, it, it, it was a different business. It wasn't the business that it had been when, say, the Daytona came in in 94 and, and the, the, the takings were just absolutely skyrocketing from mm. all operators. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, we, uh, we saw that as time went by that there was a, a decline when all the console games came in your PlayStation and whatever mm. there was obvi obvious that there was less money on the street and um, that's uh, you know it, it, it was uh, you know it was obvious that uh, it wasn't sustainable to, to me anyway so I uh, decided that I'd go more and more towards catering for the home use market. Yeah. And I remember being in New Zealand, I saw a lot of publicity for Bumper Action. Mm. They would have been doing a similar thing yes. with their showroom on, is it City Road? They had their showroom. They, they, they moved to City Road, yes. They mm. were in, uh, in Vale Street in St Kilda before that. And did, did you see yourselves as colleagues or competitors? For, Co competitors, for, very, yeah. very much competitors, yeah. yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. all right. And that was very buoyant, the, the home market, do you think? Yes. Um, you were, selling new, were you selling new stock as well as uh, second-hand? Uh, 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 predominantly second-hand by this stage. 
Um, but uh, people like Letcher and Erlite, they were in the same market. Hankin and company were in the same market. Uh, and then probably ourselves, as far as turnover goes, in third position, and uh, and then a number of others, you know, sort of yeah. Yeah. involved in the same same field. And there were a number of other companies that started making their own cabinets. Mm. And um, yeah, so th there was competition, but uh, it, it was predominantly Frankie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Were you getting containers from Europe as well, or uh, not? Not from not from Europe. Uh, the containers we uh, we brought in would have been pinballs and pinballs only. Right. And they would uh, they would come out of the States or Japan. Okay. Yeah. So that's the um, American machines were uh, not well looked after. The Japanese machines, even though the same the same brands and the same titles as the as the ex uh, USA machines, but they were absolutely pristine. Mm. You know, you could buy a tabletop out of out of uh, Japan, and it would still have the original cardboard A frame display on the on the table untouched wow. you know mm. so like the the, the 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 respect that uh, Japanese had for somebody else's property is just extraordinary yeah, mm. yeah it's a very cultural thing isn't oh it? absolutely mm. yes. now you talk about jukeboxes when I saw when you, I met you on Sunday you had a quite a fondness for jukeboxes um, was, that, was that a personal you you sold jukeboxes in your yes, showroom yes. as well. Yes, we, we we sold jukeboxes. We we traded jukeboxes. We never we never had an agency for jukeboxes, like for for new ones. Um, we had agreements with uh, importers to to sell new ones, but not not an agency as such. Um, but um, I became involved and. Uh, um, more and more people were sort of falling by the wayside that, that knew anything about jukeboxes and uh, at the moment I'm getting uh, bombarded with requests to repair this and repair that. This is today, today these days, today, yeah, right, yeah, right, right. Sort of all, all these years later yeah. and uh, my lounge room has currently got three jukeboxes sitting there. So. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a particular brand that you like more than others? From their build quality, I like the NSM. They've got a fantastic amplifier, and the the you know the construction, the solid construction, and the you know durability, very very hard to go go past. Uh, also, Row AMI because of their sound quality, they're, you know, they're they ha they were good in the late 50s in, with the valve amplifiers and uh, piece by piece they've improved up until the the, the current uh, fully solid state 250 watt amplifiers they're uh, you know mm. they are very very good sounding machines yeah. 
There was, I remember in the 90s, they had a trend for the end. I think the NSM had the little wall boxes. Yes. The CD jukeboxes. Yes. And they, yeah. they were very popular in smaller venues. Yes. Yeah. Um, very good unit. And the changer, just extraordinary how fast it can go from disc one, track one, to disc 100, track 20. Yeah. It does it in a, you know, in a, in a couple of seconds. You know, so it's... Uh, uh, it's a it's a fantastic changer. It mm. really is. How what do you what do you feel about Wurlitzer, Rockola, and Seaberg, as they they kind of uh, brands which have been um, very much desired, aren't they? Still to this day, you can you can sell any of those machines. You know, uh, and and a lot of people sort of have personal preferences to the look of certain ones and. Uh, uh, the iconic row AMI Continental with the bubble top that's very much a, a sought after machine and it doesn't have to be a working unit and still bring ridiculous money mm. uh, but um, you know the late um, the late 50s early 60s Rockolas uh, extraordinary good looking machines mm. and that was the time when you could actually see the mechanism operating. But then in the later 60s, 70s, they tended to cover it over with the title strips. Mm. So you didn't see the record playing. And, you know, uh, in reflecting in today's price, you pay a lot more for a jukebox where you can see the record player into one where you can't. So, yeah. <laughs> So you're, you're still involved with amusements and, and jukeboxes? Yes, yes. Um, I've had a technician working with me on and off um, right up until recently. Um, having, a, having a bit of a struggle finding a technician at the moment because we're a dying breed. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but the amount of work that's coming through, I... You know, I have more than enough for for one technician and myself to to make a make a good income out of it. So, Gunnar, how do you see um, the current market of pinball today? Totally changed. Uh, I can't see it being viable for an operator to pay the prices of a brand new pinball, put it on location have it uh, deteriorate relatively quickly for the amount of money that's in the cash box. And that's another problem that we have with the cashless society. I've been here a week and I haven't had any cash through my wallet. Everything's been pay wave. Yes, yes. And that's uh, possibly a, a side issue. That, that applies to, you know, uh, the, the food industry, the restaurant industry, the general shopping is uh, more and more electronic so uh, I don't know whether that'll have an impact on amusements at all but uh, um, the, the the fact that uh, you, know, you, you buy a, a pinball machine for a very very high price and then see the relatively small amount of money going through that machine compared to 
what we had in the past. So it's gone from being an operator-focused industry <clears throat> to a home collector, and you, you mentioned 2,500 for a brand new machine back in 78, yes. and yeah. now up to twenty to 25,000 for a brand new machine for the home market, yeah. essentially, isn't it? Yes, yes. So it's, it's become more a, a target for the home use. They've, uh, they seem to have the money to go out and buy this machine as a, as a, as a toy, and uh, it doesn't have to have money coming in every week. You, you know, it's, it's not a business venture. So, uh, you know, from, from an operator, I, I can't see it. Other type of equipment, yes, like your uh, toy machines and your chocolate vending machines and those sort of things, they seem to still generate a fair amount of, uh, of coin or a fair amount of, of money going through the machine, a fair amount of trade, but uh, pinball's not the case. And I did ask you before, when you had your showroom in 97 and thereabouts, not many home sales were brand new machines. They were mostly oh, no. yeah. second-hand yeah. refurbished yeah. titles. Yeah. Did you have any home sales? You must have had a few. Oh, yes, yes. There were, there, there, there's always been a few, uh, a few die-hard collectors, you know, back in those days because, you know, you would get requests for wood rail pinballs and uh, things of that nature and, uh, you know, which is 1950s, 1940s, 1950s, and, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, yeah, collectors in general were always looking for, for, for things that would uh, fall into that category, you know, mm. but mm. Uh, certainly not to the extent uh, that uh, you've got uh, operators, or not operators, you've got customers today that, uh, that want... Um, something that's going to uh, improve in or increase in value that's mm. going to be a, a true collectible item mm. hey um i think we've covered a lot of ground gunner and mm. is there anything else that you'd like to add but i think no no that's, that's it's been really fascinating i looked through the history of uh coin up in melbourne and uh, i really do i really do appreciate you giving me the time my um, pleasure. To talk about it. My pleasure. So yeah, thanks. We'll probably close it off there. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Right. <laughs> Cheers.